Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the team at Project Health Monitoring. PHM provides digital solution for industry, sport, and education, allowing you to focus on well-being, performance, and academic engagement in real time. But more on that a little later in the episode. And welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, 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 beautiful people. I hope you are all on fire this week. No matter how your week is unfolding, I hope you've been able to find a little bit of time for yourself, a little bit of time to be kind to others, and a little bit of time to laugh. Laughter is the best medicine. So I'm actually at the coast this week. So for those regulars that jump on every week, you might notice a few little different sounds in the background. Today, I want to introduce you to Narissa Trindale, an inspirational speaker and international bestseller author. As a migrant gay woman of color and a carer for her wife, she is no stranger to crisis and adversity. Narissa believes in growing through life instead of just going through life. We begin the episode talking about Narissa's experience growing up in India and going to an all-girls Catholic school run by Irish nuns. The messaging she received was, if you're gay, you are going to hell, and that it's not okay to be gay. As a result, Narissa hid herself from the world. She was confused and her self-worth plummeted. Narissa talks about reaching the darkest of dark days and realizing the only way for her to survive was to speak out. She described what it was like when she told someone for the very first time. We discussed Narissa meeting Charlie, her now wife, and only eight weeks after Charlie suffered a life-changing accident, and this meant that she had to undergo 27 surgeries, which resulted in a below-knee amputation. Towards the end of the episode, we open up the conversation around mental health. Narissa's wife lives with a severe mental health condition known as schizoaffective disorder, and we talk about what that means, what their life looks like, the hard days, the moments of psychosis, how we can all be more aware, accepting, and loving of someone who is having a hard day. Narissa and her wife, Charlie, have actually written a phenomenal book on this very thing, and we will pop it in the show notes for anyone that is interested. Let me introduce you to someone that has had their fair share of adversity. Thank you, Narissa, for finding the time today and this week. Thank you so much for having me, Ali. It's such a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. And Narissa, I love to start the podcast with a question. If you were to use an animal to describe you, what animal would that be and why? I find this question really interesting. Uh, And when I think about it, it was actually hard for me to pick one. So I'm going to go with two. So I'm going to go with, uh, firstly, a lion. And uh, I go with that based on kind of the national leadership style, the calm kind of composed nature of being able to move through anything and not just move yourself through anything, but also being able to lead other people uh, through a lot of stuff as well. And then the other one that I chimpanzee and that kind of I pick because it brings like that lighter, fun, humorous side into my personality. And I really like the elements of both that kind of combine in, which is kind of so opposite, but also uh, really gel well together. So I would say a lion and a chimpanzee. Do you think that's how your partner would describe you? That's really interesting. You know what? I did ask her that question and she was like, hmm, but she didn't give me an answer. So I'll have to go back and find out. (laughs) You let her get away with it. I didn't give her the options. I just said, you know, what animal do you think I, I most resonate with? And she's like, mm, let me get back to you on that one. I was like, okay, so we're still waiting. So I'll let you know if it's the same or different. <laughs> it's one of the, we've been umming and ironing about whether to change this question as an opening question. And, and people have been saying to me the last couple of weeks, please don't change it because it really gives us a bit of an insight, like a bit of a window into the person you're about to interview. And the best example is you just use lion. I think we've had it two or three times, but every time someone's given a different characteristic 
of a lion and what it is that they take away from that and how that resonates with their personality. Mm. And Narissa, you have had so much going on recently. Oh my God, I have been following and you have just done this massive tour and I can't wait to dive deep into everything. But I guess it's really nice just to open the platform up to you for you to begin to start to tell us a little bit about who you are and where you've come from and how that's gotten you to kind of where you are today. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So I think you touched briefly uh, on it a bit in terms of everything that's been going on at the moment. And what I do currently is I'm a, a speaker and a coach. I'm a transformational speaker and coach. I speak on global platforms about people stepping into the next best version of themselves, whether that is through sharing their story and their message, or whether that is in them kind of overcoming challenges, building resilience, and stepping into a life of possibility and purpose. And that's through coaching and as well as speaking. And the thing that most surprises me and the thing that I'm proudest of when I wake up every morning is the fact that I get to do this in life. Like I get to wake up and do something that I'm so passionate about, not just about for myself, but also for other people. And to have just completed my first tour of the US, you know, to have written books, to have, to be a published best-selling author, all of that is amazing. But the thing that kind of I am most passionate about is seeing people step into their own possibility and live a life on purpose when they know that they're on this planet for a reason and for a purpose. Because my life was so different from where I am today. And when people ask me to, you know, pick a word or describe my life now, the word I use is unrecognizable because it is unrecognizable, my life now, to what I do, uh, the way I show up in the world, to what it used to be. And for you to understand the reason why I do it, I'll take you on a journey back to where kind of it all first started. So I grew up back in India in the 1980s. And growing up in India, I was bullied at school because I was seen as being someone different. And back then, I didn't know what about me made me different. I didn't know why I was being bullied back then. But I was bullied because I came across as being different. I didn't fit the social norm of what a good Indian Christian girl should be. I dressed maybe differently. I appeared differently. The way I walked was different. And because of that, I was bullied at school. I was misunderstood at home. And I was constantly made to fit into this mold that I just didn't fit into. And the more that I was pushed into being somebody that I was not, the more of myself I lost along the process. And as I was growing up, I lost my own authenticity, my uniqueness, my self-belief, my confidence. All of that was stripped away from me. And I began leading a life where I couldn't even recognize who this person was in the mirror. And the way I saw that play out was through a series of failures. I failed at school. I failed in relationships. I failed in life. Like I had become the failure. And it was because growing up, I was like, it was almost drilled into me that I was worthless, that I was useless, that I would never be anything or become anything because of who I was. So I grew up believing that because, you know, you probably know this, like it's, it's really natural what, you know, what we're told and what's drilled into us, we start believing it. And then when we start believing it, we start behaving that way. So over time I started behaving like, you know, I would never be anything. I would never become anything. Like I'm not worth anything. And that journey led me down some very dark roads and to some very dark places. And I can say I'm very, very lucky to and blessed to still be here and still be alive and given a chance to continue to live this life and show up and do something different with it. And it was in one of those really dark, deep moments of failure that I realized that that narrative was no longer going to be my story. And the only person who could change that story, who could change that narrative, who could take me out from where I was and take me to where I needed to be was me. So I had to become the person that I needed. I had to become the parent, the teacher, the leader, the person that I needed to look up to in order to get me out of where I was. And 
through that process, I moved. I moved from India. I came to Australia and I landed here as an international student many, many years ago. And it was really hard initially. It was really, really challenging. I didn't have a lot of money. I struggled a lot. I remember getting fired from my first job and thinking like, you know, what am I even doing here? But, you know, through every lesson then, it, it taught me something. You know, everything that I went through, everything that I grew through, it built in me this resilience, this fight to know that if I could keep taking one step forward, if I could keep moving forward, irrespective of what life was throwing at me, if I was able to continue to show up, then at some point the universe was going to go, hey, you know what, this person just keeps showing up. We've got to change something here. So that's what I did. I just went, you know, I'm going to throw myself into everything possible and do everything I possibly can to stay on and to make a life for myself. Nusa, as I'm hearing you talk, there's a few things that are jumping up. And one of them is like, I can hear for you now when you're looking back, it's like you'd gone through this huge experience, right? And it was like one step in front of the other, I'm going to keep going. But what helped you in that moment to realize that's what you need to like you said you realized that it was only you that could show up for yourself and take those steps but did something happen like you know because so often when people are in it right it's so hard to recognize that it is taking a step and then another step and then another step like how did you come up with that in the first place if we just go back to that moment yeah I think for me it was getting to a point where like I just had hit rock bottom Ali I had hit rock bottom so hard that I knew that the only place from here had to be up. Like there was nowhere further this could go. And it was in that moment that I knew that I either had to change something in my life, I had to speak my truth and be who I am, or I was going to die living this lie. And it was in that moment I had to make a decision. Like, do I come out and say, this is who I am and, and live the life that I can possibly live, even though I couldn't see what that was going to look like, but it was, do I take this chance and give it a shot or do I die in this lie and never be me? And I think it was that moment of decision where I said, okay, I've just got to give it a shot. I, I've got to, you know, make this thing count. And I think it was that moment that I decided I was no longer going to live a lie. I was going to come out. I was going to speak my truth. I was going to own it. But even in making that decision, it took me a really long time from that point of actually making a decision to say this is what I have to do to actually doing it because there was so much generational conditioning and layers of it, you know, like I, I grew up in an Indian Christian family, so, you know, I couldn't be Indian and gay. I couldn't be Christian and gay. Like how do I find my space in this identity that is so foreign and given growing up, I was told that everything about me was wrong. I was like, how do I bring this part of me, which everybody has said is wrong, to accepting who I am and then taking a step forward from there? And that was, I think, a risk I was willing to take at that point because I could no longer live the way I was. How old were you at this point? I probably think like the, the, whole, the whole journey was probably growing up, like say from about like 10 to like the next 20 years. Uh, but I finally came out when I was 30. Okay. And when you moved from India to Australia, how old were you then? Just so that we can kind of get a picture of when we're talking through this. I think I was, I was about 22. And did you know in your heart, did you know at that time that you were gay or was that something that came out later? Like, because there's kind of a couple of things coming into one when you're talking there. There's a lot of different aspects. There's people telling you that you weren't okay. And then there was the bullying and then there was the not fitting in or feeling like you're fitting in or knowing something inside you was different to what you're seeing around you. Yeah. Look, for me, if I look back, I can definitely say that, you know, there was something that I can pick up going way back that was a bit different, I guess, in the sense, you know, like if you think back to like high school and all my friends having, you know, crushes on boys, I was like, I, I don't feel like that. that. That's that's not me. But because it was kind of the done thing to do, I kind of slotted into it. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went along with what society saw as the norm back then. And when I moved to Australia, because I did not want to be bullied anymore. I did not want to live a life where, you know, everyone around me was telling me how everything was wrong. I said, okay, let me just change. Let mm. me try changing on the outside 
if it's going to help me on the inside. So when I moved to Australia, I did a complete 360. So in India growing up, I was very tomboyish. You know, you'd always see me in shorts and T-shirts out on the sporting field. I had bruised knees. I had rolled up sleeves, collars thrown back. And then when I moved to Australia, I thought, okay, this I'm in a different place now. I can try something different. And I did a complete 360. So I, you know, put on the heels. I wore dresses. I put on makeup. I wore earrings. I did everything I possibly could to make it work on the outside. So people wouldn't, I guess, bully me or people wouldn't continue to perceive me as being wrong. So I tried to, but the more I did that, the more I changed the outside, the internal conflict just grew. Mm. And I got to the point where we just spoke about where there was nothing else in me that could fight that. And it was either make a change, come out and own this, or die living to try. Do you think that people around you knew that's where you were in that moment? Do you think others saw what you were feeling and experiencing on the inside? No, no, they didn't. I think people growing up might have seen or perceived a a change of me wanting to be something that I was not allowed to be, but I don't think anybody knew what I was going through or battling inside because on the outside, I showed up with a big smile on my face. I showed up as if everything was okay. Like, you know, I would be the life of the party. I would be the person that, you know, would cheer up anyone else. Like you, you, people would call me just for that. So I was that person that brought life to everybody else. But on the inside, like I was dying. Yeah. So when you made that decision, was it in a moment? Like, was it in a moment that you were like, you know what, this isn't working for me and I'm going to try something else? Or was it over a period of time? It was over a period of time, like, because the signs were there all along and it was something that I was fighting. What do you mean when you say that? Like when you say it was something you're fighting, just so we get a picture, what did that look like for you? Yeah. So people often speak about like internalized homophobia in a sense of because there's so much conditioning around the fact that, you know, I couldn't be gay, I shouldn't be gay. Mm. It was like the question I would ask myself is how can I be gay? Like how is this who I am? If this person is so wrong, how can I be that person? How can something I intrinsically feel so right be Mm. so wrong? And how Mm. in my mind, how do I rationalize that? Like how do I say this is who I am? when everyone around me is telling me it's wrong to be who I am. Mm. And for me, it was the point where I had to get to a point where I knew that I could be comfortable being me. And when I did come out, I thought I was going to lose everyone. I was going to lose my family, my friends, everybody. But I had to get to the point where I could be comfortable in knowing And even when I came out and said I'm gay and I lost everyone around me, I could be comfortable with my decision and I could hold space for me. And it was only when I could get to that point was I then able to do it. Was I then able to first say the words, I am gay. And it sounds like, Narissa, I just want to check in, it sounds like it was all-consuming. You spent all your time and energy trying to be something else or working out how to hide it, or working out how to not be it, or working out until this point in time, whether it be a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months, where you were like, kind of, it sounds like you're just taking all the shackles off. Yeah, pretty much. Because, you know, we don't realize how much effort goes into not being you. Mm. Like, think about it. You just wake up in the morning and you show up the way you want to show up, the way you're, you're meant to be. But if you think, I'm going to get up, and I can't be who I am, and I have to be someone completely opposite to who I am, so nobody figures out who I actually am. So the layers that go onto that in terms of what do I wear, how do I sit, how do I stand, how do I speak, how do I show up, what do I say I did on the weekend so nobody would find out, like there's so many layers to that. And the energy that goes into that, the energy that is going into being this other person takes so much away from everything else that you're doing in life. So like mm. I said, I, I failed in school. I failed at university. I was underperforming at work because there was no more energy that I could put into living life or doing the things that I wanted to do because I was so, it was like just all consuming of trying to be somebody that I wasn't. And did you speak to people at the time about any of this? There was no one to speak to. There was no one to speak to because I was being bullied at school. I couldn't tell my friends this. I didn't have it sounds really weird now in 2022 sitting here saying I didn't have the words to describe it, 
but I didn't have back then when I think about in the 80s, 90s growing up, I didn't have the words to describe how I was feeling. Yeah. I couldn't say that, you know, I find another girl attractive or why am I having these feelings or, you know, kind of sit with a parent or sit with a friend or a teacher or an adult and and crash this out, you know, go, okay, yeah. I'm feeling this. Is this kind of, is this how I'm meant to feel? How should I feel like, is this okay? Like there was no mm. conversation around that. It was just all internal. And I think when it is all internal, it becomes so much more amplified mm. because you're not able to say it. It becomes louder. It becomes scarier. It becomes bigger than it needs to be. And so what happened once you made that decision? Like what did it look like for you after that? Yeah, so I, I made a decision to come out and then it took me months to actually figure out how to do it. Who should I tell first? Should I tell a friend? Should I tell family? How do I do it? And I decided to tell my sister first. My sister's younger than me. She lives in India. And I decided to tell her because I thought, look, at the end of the day, family's family. And even if they don't get it or don't understand it, you know, hopefully they will love me for who I am. And it took everything in my being to get to the point to make that phone call. So she was in India, so it had to be over the phone. And I remember the date and time so clearly. It was like a cold winter's evening on, in August. And I had planned the exact time and date down to a T. I was at home. I was on the balcony of my kind of two-bedroom apartment. It was about 5.30 in the evening. And I'd picked the time because I knew that, you know, my flatmate wouldn't be at home. I was standing on the balcony behind this pillar so that, you know, if the neighbors came out, they wouldn't be able to see what I was doing. I had literally planned it down to the exact moment. But even though I'd done all this planning, when it got to that point to actually do it, I was terrified. Like I could feel my knees knocking. I could feel my chest pounding. I could feel my heart racing. Like I felt like I was being dragged backwards on a roller coaster. And even in that moment, I was like, I, I don't want to do this. Like I, I don't want to put myself through it, but I knew that there was, there was no going back from it. Like that was the only option of surviving that I had at that point of was making that phone call. So I just put my hand in my pocket. I picked up that phone and trembling, I just pressed that number to dial my sister and I hoped that she would be home all the way in India in, in her two-bedroom apartment on the first floor and I hoped that she would pick up my phone call. And luckily she did. And and when she did, I, I there was no conversation. I was like, look, I've got to tell you something and I've just got to say it. And she was like, okay. And I just said, I'm gay. And then there was like silence on the phone. And it was probably a few seconds, but to me it felt like eternity. And in those moments, I still remember like I was literally holding onto the rail of the balcony just to steady myself, to, to feel like, okay, I can get through this phone call. But what my sister said in that moment, like her response was something I didn't expect. It was something that I could not have predicted in my wildest of dreams. She said three words that completely changed my life. And she said, I accept you. I accept you. And it was all that I needed in that moment to know that I was loved, that it was okay to be me, that, that I was accepted, that this, this turmoil that I was living through was, I, I no longer had to do that because there was this one person that said it was okay and that they accepted me. And we then went on to have a much lengthy conversation after that. And of course, she had questions that I had answers to. I had questions that she had to answer. Like, all of that. But it was in that moment where she just said, I accept you. That kind of changed the trajectory for me and set me on the path that has led me to where I am today, where I feel comfortable in who I am, where I live congruently and confidently as who I am. And, you know, I, I share my story now to inspire other people to do that. You know, maybe it's not them coming out of a closet, so to speak, but there's so many different closets that people live in. There's so many different parts uh, of themselves that people hide and don't show up as themselves. And when we can truly be who we were placed on this earth to be, who we were called to be, that is when life changes and that's when possibility just opens and you're able to step out and, you know, be in a place where you can live authentically as who you are. And I think too the other part of that is we can all say those three words when someone tells us something. You know, I think like hearing the power of your story and having someone just hold space for you and just say, I accept you, you know, imagine if all of us listening here today 
said that to people when they were telling us something in their life that is coming out or, or talking about something they're unsure about or something that they're scared of, something that they're ashamed of, and just saying we're here with you mm. and, and it's okay. What you just said, Narissa, can change the trajectory of someone's life. 100%, 100%. Our words are so important. The language we use is so important. Our actions are so important. And it's, you know, given where we are now in the world where there's so much happening constantly, where people are evolving and changing and the rate of change is so fast, it's so important for us to be able to hold space for other people, to be able to create safe spaces where people feel comfortable to come and share anything with us, where kids can have conversations with parents, where, you know, coworkers can speak to each other, where you know, customers and clients and whoever, whatever space we're working in, people know that they feel heard, that they feel seen, that there is a safe space for they, them to come and say, hey, by the way, this is how I'm feeling. And if that's not feeling okay, then for them to feel okay to say that they're not feeling okay and for us to be able to hold space and listen to that. I think, you know, just in terms of mental health and well-being, that is such an important thing that we need to be focusing on. And did you then come out at like a bull at a gate and be like, I'm going to tell everyone and then like had some ups and downs with that? Or, you know, did you cautiously tread after that? Because that's a beautiful experience, but it's not always consistent like that. So true. So true. I mean, I'm forever blessed that that was my first response because had it not been, I don't think my journey would have been what it is today. So Mm. I'm forever blessed that that was the first person that I said it to. My sister actually had that response. And uh, it was interesting because after that we spoke and she actually said, look, I'm always here to support you, but it would be good if you actually had some support in Australia. So why don't you, you know, is there anyone that can support you? So I remember looking up a coming out group and I went to a coming out group here and that really, really helped me. You know, I made some incredible friends that actually met my now wife there, but it was through that group. We'd meet fortnightly and like, There was no kind of agenda or anything that they planned, but I kind of just set myself little goals and to say, now that I'm out, I want to be as authentic and live as true to me as I possibly can. And the sooner I can tell, the more people I can tell, then that allows me to be who I am. But it was not always easy. The next person I told was my mom, and she was absolutely incredible as well. You know, she just said, look, you are who you are, and I love you for who you are. And, you know, she had questions as well going forward and she's come on an incredible journey with both myself and my wife now. But there were people in my family, there were friends that I've lost along the way because of who I am. And, you know, not all of my family get it. They're very religious and, you know, sometimes they'll still send me messages like they're praying for my soul and all of that. And uh, I say this, that the people that want to walk with me and want to continue on the journey with me based on who I am will stay with me. And those that don't, won't. But I'm no longer going to show up as somebody who I'm not. I'm no longer going to play small or dim my light for these people. I'm going to show up and walk into every room as who I am and allow the light of that room to get brighter because I'm there. And if the people that want to be in my life and be part of that can show up and be there, then I'm blessed to have them there. And if not, then I wish them well. And I know this isn't the whole story, so there's a little bit more we want to go into. But before we do, I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, when you look back on it, what would you say to someone that's listening that is really nervous about having that first conversation? Like is there any anything that you could say to them here today? Yeah. Look, I think everyone's journey is unique. Uh, everyone's journey, even though there's so much similarity in a lot of our journeys, it's still very unique. It's still very personal to each person. And I'm in no place to sit here and say, you know, that someone needs to come out at a certain time or in a certain way. But what I would say is this, that if you can find someone that you can talk to, and I talk about, you know, finding your tribe, finding your people that get you, but even if you can't find a tribe or, you know, a group of people, find one person that you know that you can trust completely, that you can share your truth with and have that conversation and feel like you can be in a safe place to do that, then I encourage you to do it. But of course, safety is is first because, you know, we can sit here and say this, but there are so many countries, sadly, around the world where still, you know, people are being killed for who they are. People are being killed for, you know, something that they don't have control over. So it's very important, firstly, to know that you are safe 
in what you're about to do and say. And, and I talk about that in terms of personal safety, but then finding somebody that, that you can trust and then you can share that story with and know that there are people out there that love you, that accept you just the way you are. And sometimes that might not be your immediate family. It might not be your current set of friends, but there are people out there in this world that you can reach via phone, online. There's so many different platforms and there are people out there that love you, that accept you just the way you are. And I think too, just to layer that a little deeper, you know, we talk a lot about you need to accept who you are first, but this is a really good example of even if you do in your heart of hearts know something, if the rest of the world is not giving you the feedback and the encouragement and the support and the cheerleading that you need, sometimes you do need that. You do need that environment, which is what you're talking about, that's beside you and walks with you and supports you. So, you know, I think this is one of the best examples I've heard of that where even if you know it to your soul and know it to your core, sometimes you need to change your environment as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, if if it is possible for you to do that, do that because sometimes we can't choose the family that we're born into, the society that we're born into. Sometimes we do get to choose the friends and the circles we're in, but sometimes we also find ourselves in those circles by way and nature of how circumstances unfold. So where it is possible when you can remove yourself from situations, from environments and communities that are not appreciating you, that are not seeing you for your worth, then I would encourage you to do that because, you know, there are people in this world that will love you, that will accept you for exactly who you are. And you don't have to change anything about you to be that. You just have to find the right community that does that. And hopefully, as we continue to have conversations like this, you know, I feel every conversation that we have changes something and people move a little little further forward and the hope is that you know we'll get to a a time one day hopefully where no one ever has to come out again where this is just acceptable and it's just the norm and and no one has to do it Mm. wouldn't that be a lovely place And there's, this isn't, like we said, this isn't the whole story. Like from here, there was a whole, there's been a lot that's happened between then and now. Maybe if we talk a little bit around, you met your wife, Charlie, and some things happened there and maybe take us through a little bit of this chapter, the next chapter. Yeah, the next chapter. That's right. <laughs> it's a bit of a roller coaster, <laughs> the, the story. But yeah, so I, I met my wife, uh, my now wife, through the coming out group that I went to. And initially she told me that she liked me and uh, we'd been friends for a while and she told me she'd like me. And I was like, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to get into a relationship right now. And this went on for a few months. She says I played hard to get, but now I was like, I'm worth the wait. So (laughs) this went on for a while. And then finally I was like, you know, yes, you were right. You know, let's give this a go. Let's, you know, get into this relationship. And we were in a relationship for about eight weeks when she met with a serious motorbike accident. She was on her way home from work one day and um, met with this accident. I was sitting at home waiting for her to come home after an evening shift. And she'd always come home at a certain time and and call me. And I hadn't received the phone call. And I was like, what's going on? Maybe her phone's died. Like, you know, maybe she's left the phone at work. So I was like, surely there's got to be an explanation. So I was sitting and waiting. It went from half an hour to an hour, hour and a half, two hours. I rang her flatmate. I was like, is she home? No, I haven't heard anything. And then I was like getting a bit worried. I was like, this is unlikely. This is out of the how it should play out. And I was about to just get into my car and then drive to her work, like drive the route from my place to her work. When I got a, a phone call, and it was from an unknown number. And I generally don't answer unknown numbers. But given that moment, I was like, just pick it up. And I answered it. And it was uh, a nurse in the emergency room at the hospital telling me that my partner had been in a serious accident at that point and telling me to just come into the hospital. So I jumped in the car and drove to the hospital, not knowing what I was even going to find when I get there. And when I got there, I met, I went through the emergency room and I found her lying in bed and she had like broken, like a whole right side was like injured. She had fractures all down her right side. I remember the first night in hospital, sitting in the hospital in the emergency room till about five in the morning and then she went into surgery about 5 a.m and it lasted for about 12 hours and it was a couple of days later I met the surgeon and I was like you know what's this recovery going to look like you know should I take a couple of days off you know how do I plan for this and he looked at me and he said Nerissa 
you know, I think you should pace yourself because this is going to be more like 18 months. At that time, I remember thinking, okay, wow, like 18 months. All right. I got to pace myself. But fast forward, like five years later and 27 surgeries later, we were then faced with the decision to amputate her leg. So all the surgeries that we had been through, all of the rehab, all of the therapy that we'd been through in those last five years did not work. She was still in significant amount of pain. And now we were at the point where we had to make a decision whether we should amputate her leg. And we ended up going down that path, of course. And that was something really new for both of us to deal with. I think she was at the point where, because she had been in so much pain, she was at the point where she knew that this is what she needed to move forward. But for me, as her partner, it was really hard because I was like, you know, what does this mean for you? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for our future? All of that. And it took me a lot more time to get to the point of saying, okay, to the amputation. I mean, ultimately, it wasn't my decision. It was hers. But I guess for me to be okay with it. And uh, we've since been on that journey as well. We've been together now for about 11 years. We got married about five years ago. And I remember when she had the amputation, her goal, because we were getting married in about four months time, and her goal was to walk down the aisle. And she did everything she could to make that happen. And we did actually walk down the aisle together. So it was absolutely incredible to to see her achieve that goal, but then for us to be able to walk down that aisle, to get married, to, you know, do that in front of family and friends and our loved ones and just celebrate that day because it was a celebration on so many different levels of life and love and just living truly as who we should be. And of course, during that entire journey, there's been challenges, both physical and both mental. So my wife also lives with a severe mental health condition which is schizoaffective disorder and PTSD. So for those that don't know, schizoaffective disorder is a combination of like a mood disorder and also like psychosis, like schizophrenia, which is psychosis-based, and then a mood disorder like bipolar or depression. And she has the depressive nature to that and also chronic PTSD. And with that has come multiple challenges of navigating life, both through physical and mental health challenges and It's been really interesting to see the varied responses and reactions of people to mental health versus physical health. And often people get physical health a lot more than they get mental health. And even if I think back now to probably she's had close to 30 surgeries and each of them have been gut-wrenching, like sitting in in a hospital room waiting to see if the person you love is breathing or comes out of surgery or makes it or what the complications are after that. Even all of that put together, for me as her partner, the mental health side of it has been even more challenging because on the mental health side, it's something that we can't see. So it's very hard to know what a person is experiencing, what they're going through, you know, what their mind is doing in that moment. Because she suffers and lives with schizoaffective disorder, she has psychosis where she has auditory and visual hallucinations. So she can see things and hear things that often we can't see or hear because it's not part of our reality. But for her, that is her reality. It's just a different reality. And that's why the book actually we've co-authored together is actually called A Different Reality because it paints both the pictures of, of her reality and then mine, of hers through lived experience and then mine as a carer. And we've been navigating this journey for about 10 years now and every day we continue to learn and grow and take another step forward together. And when you're saying, because a lot of people have never been in a room or experienced someone that has hallucinations or delusions, and so could you give us an example of what that looks like from what you see and notice and and then is she aware of it at the time, you know? Yeah, so, for example, you know, she might feel like, you know, there are cameras around that are watching her or she might feel like somebody is following her or there might be somebody at the door that is trying to come in. Whereas I knew if I opened the door, there's no one there. But in her mind, that is created. And it took me a long time to be able to understand that. And it took me a long time to be able to get to the point of understanding how I have a conversation around it. Because whilst you don't want to encourage it, you also don't want to challenge it to the point where the person doesn't trust you. So it's about building a level of trust where they know and can understand that 
your reality is different and their reality is different. So I will always say things like, you know, I understand how scary this might be for you. I understand this is your reality, but know that in my reality, you are safe. In my reality, you are okay. And try and bring some of that grounding into what they're feeling. But, you know, people sometimes experience anxiety and depression and even mental health on so many other different levels is just not spoken about. And as a society, I know it's shifting now, but there's still so much stigma and judgment associated with mental health where people don't feel comfortable saying, you know, by the way, I'm struggling. Like if you think, you know, people call up work and say, I'm not coming in because I have a headache or a backache rather than saying I'm actually really overwhelmed today or I've got really bad anxiety and I can't come in. Those phone calls, those conversations need to increase. People need to feel And we need to create spaces where people feel comfortable to say, I'm okay to not be okay. Like it's okay to say I'm struggling. It's okay to say I need help and to go out and ask for help because it was only when we were able to actually go out and get help. And even for myself as a carer for a long time, I didn't even consider myself to be a carer. So I was like, well, I'm in this role by default. This is my partner, my wife, and therefore I'm caring for them. But it was only when I actually said, hey, you know what? This role actually means that I'm actually a carer. I'm caring for somebody living with chronic mental health and physical health disabilities, and I've got to go out and get help for myself. So I go to therapy. I attend support groups. I attend sessions and education sessions where I learn and I improve my knowledge and I get more strategies and understanding of how I can better support my wife. And in going out and reaching for help to better support myself, I've been able to be a better carer and to provide better care and love and support for what she needs. We all know I am a big advocate for improving your mental health, but how can you know when to act? Project Health Monitoring, or PHM, provides a versatile, safe and secure digital platform that allows students a means to communicate current and emerging issues in real time. The platform provides educators with data to take targeted and timely action so their students feel known, valued, and cared for. PHM takes away the days of second-guessing. With children increasingly connected via technology, the PHM approach allows students to initiate a conversation without having to raise their hands. Students need to feel connected and empowered by feeling directly engaged socially and emotionally. Creating this resilience helps them to feel safe and enhances their well-being, performance, and academic outcomes. For a free Project Health Check on your school, please click the link provided in our show notes. Now, back to the show. Anusa, how did you guys first notice that this was coming up? Because I think you're saying, you know, how important it is that we can have the conversation, but sometimes that conversation is after we realize or we accept or we've learned more knowledge in the area. But like, what does it look like right at the beginning when you first started to notice that perhaps something didn't feel right, didn't look right, didn't seem right? So when I met Charlie, she had already had a diagnosis of mental health and that diagnosis has changed over the years. But I remember when we were friends and she initially told me about the diagnosis, I was thrown. Now, I grew up in India and this is cultural as well, right? And I want to mention this as well because a lot of times uh, different cultures don't even have words around mental health. There is no language around mental health. And growing up in India, it was very much just get on and get on with your day. Like there was no space to say I'm struggling or I'm not feeling well or I'm anxious or overwhelmed. It was like, you know, I didn't even know the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. I had no concept or understanding of it. And so when Charlie told me this, I was really thrown because I had zero understanding of mental health. And I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to react. And I'm, you know, now I know so much more. But back then, if I think back to 10, 11 years for people that are listening, I too didn't know how to respond or react. And all I found myself doing at that moment was just asking more questions and asking questions, not from kind of a prying point of view, but asking questions from a, I call it genuine curiosity. When we come into something with the awareness and acceptance and an understanding and love that we want to understand so we can better support the person. And back then we were friends and I would just ask questions and allow Charlie to tell me however much she wanted to share with me or tell me. 
And it was through that that the conversation started to build and started to grow and the trust started to build that she knew she could come and tell me almost anything, like to the point where now she can come and tell me anything. And it's about, you know, I think you spoke about earlier about a certain level of judgment. And people that live with mental health often live with a lot of shame and a lot of guilt about experiencing what they're going through and sharing what they're going through. They feel like, you know, they're letting the team down or they're letting their family down or they're letting themselves down or they shouldn't be experiencing what they're experiencing. So it's really important for us as the people listening, for us to create spaces where people feel like that's okay, where there is no judgment, where there are no repercussions, where it is a safe place of unconditional love and acceptance. So to allow the person to not feel that shame and guilt when they're coming to us to share something with us and creating a space where they can bring however they're feeling and know that there's someone there that is going to listen. And I can say that that is not easy. And I can say I, it, that wasn't the place that I started from because initially I would very much go at it with, this is what you should do. This is what I think you should do. Like I would go into the solutions because I am a person who solves problems. I'm like, okay, there's a problem. This is the solution. Here's what you should do. And I thought I was being helpful. I thought I was really helping, but I can admit now that I was wrong, that I was not helping. And, and that way of reacting was really not helpful because what I needed to say in that moment was, I hear you. I understand you. Thank you so much for sharing this with me. And then ask how I can help. Because in doing that, it actually allows, like when we're responding to someone that is sharing about mental health with us, it is important that we acknowledge how they're feeling, that we validate how they're feeling, that we accept what that means for them, that we say, thank you for sharing that with me because I understand how hard it would have been for you to share that with me. And then offering help in a way that isn't us directing it, but is saying, how best can I help you? Like, What do you need today? What can I do to help you feel better? Is there something that we can do to help you feel better? And then allowing them to direct that conversation so they feel more in control of it. And I think, Nerissa, what you said there is really important because I think for a lot of people, their fear is what will I say <laughs> or how can I help or I won't know what to do. So it's, their reaction is actually coming from a fear-based perspective. And what you're saying there is you don't need to have the answers. Absolutely. You don't have to, like a lot of people think like they have to come up with a solution. They have to come up with an answer. They have to know a way forward. And I can understand that because as humans, that's how we operate. You know, we want to go in and we want to help. We want to fix things. But often with mental health, it's just being there so someone can come and speak to you. And when they do speak to you, not making it about yourself because we have a tendency to do that as well. Like someone might come and say, you know, this is how I'm feeling. Yeah, this is what I'm experiencing. And then we jump in and say, oh, yeah, I totally understand what you mean. You know, I felt the same a couple of months ago. And here's what I did. And here's what you should do. And it's about catching ourselves in doing that and saying, hey, you know what? This is not about me. This is about me just being there and listening. So that's what I say to people. Number one, it's finding the right time and place to do it. Because often people don't want to do it in a busy setting or in you know a group setting. So often finding a one-on-one -on -one place where you can have a conversation with somebody. I even say, sit down. If the person's sitting down, sit down yourself because it just makes you come across as being more on their level. And then when they speak, just listen. Like actively listen. And then just acknowledge and validate what they're saying. And thirdly, just offer help. Don't direct the help. But offer the help to say, you know, what do you need? How can I help you? What can we do to make this better for you? And then go from there. And I think if we can all do at least those three things, then that will help us all have better conversations around mental health and create safer spaces where people feel like it's okay to have those conversations. And I think what happens is when we have those conversations, the first time they might be a bit clunky and the second time they might still be a bit clunky, but what we're actually doing is creating that foundation of trust that you spoke about where eventually when that conversation comes together and it's happened enough times where they feel safe enough and secure enough, then they might be able to say the next thing or the next thing and then the help might be able to come or it might be the first time they say it out loud to anyone because it's the first time that someone's actually sat there not judging and holding space. That's right. And the, and the first time someone shares something is so important. You know, we spoke about this before, like, you know, our reactions, the words we use are so important. So it's about holding space for people and allowing them to speak and, you know, 
ensuring that the words we use, the language we use is always coming across as being accepting, is coming across as non-judgmental, but coming from a place of love and understanding and genuine care. And I think that can change too when it's life-threatening or when there's a safety concern. So what we're talking about here doesn't cover that. And I think, you know, people that are living with someone that's got mental health in their house, especially with some, like there's different conditions, but some can get quite dangerous. And I think, you know, it's really important that you talk to someone that can help you map out a safety plan in that scenario. Or if you find that you've started this conversation, like we're saying, and all of a sudden you think that that person's in danger or you're in danger, then you reach out straight away for someone else to get that help. And don't be afraid to do that either. Absolutely. 100% because we can all be listening here for someone and all provide safe spaces. But, you know, if it is life-threatening, if the person is in danger, if they need help, that is professional health, get 100%. Please call helplines, call the people that you need, call emergency and get the help that you need and the person needs. Mm. And Nerissa, when you think back this experience of the last sort of 11 years, what has been the hardest part for you personally, do you think? I think for me it has been the acceptance of it and the acceptance around the goalpost shifting every time because, you know, if I think back to, like I said, the initial conversation with that surgeon, he said 18 months. You know, we're, we're 11 years into it now and we're still living, learning, growing, changing, adapting to everything that comes with both the physical and the mental health side every day. And it's about being able to accept what you need to accept. I think a lot of people struggle with the word acceptance because they feel like, well, if I accept something, it means I've given up or it, it's kind of almost a bit stagnating. But the way I like to look at acceptance is it's like a starting point. Like when we use a GPS, before we can go to where we need to go, we have to know where we are. We have to know our current situation. And, and an awareness of that current situation is what I like to call acceptance of that. When you can accept where you are right now, then you can put in place the steps or whatever you need to do to get to where you need to go. So for me, one of the hardest things has been around that is accepting where I am now. What does this mean for our life together? What does it mean for my life? And then what do I need to do and what do we need to do to constantly live in a way that this doesn't consume us, but we're still able to live a really fulfilling life alongside of all of it. And how have you got some strategies up your sleeve? You know, just the one or two really easy strategies to help us find acceptance. <laughs> no, but what do you turn to in that moment? Because it would be very familiar for you, that place of thinking, you know, it's that kind of tugging feeling like I don't want to be here or I, this feels unfair or why me or, you know, this is really shit and completely understandable, right? But do you reach for something in your mind when that happens? Do you have strategies that you use? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing to understand, is that everyone's journey is different because sometimes we can you know compare our journey to someone else's journey and we can say well that person's there and that's working for them why is it not working for me and I think it's understanding that everyone's journey is unique and it's about each person knowing their limits in terms of what we can do and then what we need help with and then that flows into actually going out and asking for help like I had to understand that I couldn't do this on my own like this was not a sprint this was a marathon and in order to run marathon after marathon after marathon, I need to have the energy, the, the supplements, like I need to have my own life and body fueled up so that I can better run this marathon that is needed. And to do that, we have to be willing to go out and ask for the help and ask for professional help. That is, you know, people that can offer medication and therapy and treatment, but also personally, like building a support network around us that we can lean on when needed and I can lean on when needed that can support me so I can better support my wife or people that she can lean on. And it's understanding that. And then the next one would be to have open communication, like knowing that there are different ways to communicate. I think we often think, okay, you've got to have a conversation with someone. But sometimes like my wife doesn't feel comfortable having a conversation. So we've established different ways of communicating. So she might text me, she might leave me a note, she might send me an email. And all of that are different modes of communicating. And when we can look at communication holistically and establish a point of trust that we spoke about before, where you can trust the person that you're communicating with to have your back, to know that they're going to be there no matter what you say, that's really important. And the last one I would say is to actually focus on the wellness 
focus on putting joy and happiness back into your life every single day because things like this can be draining. They can take away from that. And it's important for us to focus on the wellness, not so much on the illness. And we can focus on the wellness when we can build you know, more moments of joy and happiness and during periods of wellness, do things, create memories that will then hold us when things get hard. And I think that's super important. And for me personally, like I factor in and structure and put like times into my day when I ensure that I build joy back into my life every single day. And that's, I guess, what keeps us going and what keeps me going. And it's a really good point. I know recently someone said to me, we're not trying to give you better days. We're trying to make the less worse days. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I don't, I had to really think about that and what that meant and how to translate that into our life. And then I was like, you know what? It's actually what you're saying. I, in my head was going, no, I just need to make sure when we're on or when we're good or when it's a great day or when the sun's shining and no one's in hospital that we actually soak up those moments and make those moments count because we know, like you, that we're in a marathon and that it's not going away anytime soon and that there's good and bad days, ups and downs, moments of adversity, moments of fear, moments of uncertainty. And so giving it energy when it needs energy and not giving it energy when it doesn't and being okay with that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I was thinking too when you were just talking about that communication, a really good example around that is, you know, I was listening to you. My daughter can't verbally tell me what's wrong. She hasn't ever been able to, but she can write it. Mm. And so when you're saying the text message and the email, we do that. She now goes and gets a computer or asks me for my phone in a moment that she's crying or frustrated or can't get the words out. And it took me a little while to kind of catch on to that. Mm. Because I was like, what? No, just tell me. And that was me not like working with the environment. And as soon as I let go of whatever it was I was hanging on to in that space as a mum, we communicate beautifully now through that, through those times. She just gets something where she can write it on paper, write it on an email. And then I go, oh, okay. And then the conversation often starts after that. Yeah. And that's a really good point you touch on there because we all have different styles or comfort zones in how we communicate. And sometimes We want others to communicate with us the way we want to communicate. Or how we feel comfortable communicating. Very true. But it's about understanding that everyone is unique and different. And whilst we want to be communicated to in a certain way, we also have to respect how other people choose to communicate and open other pathways for other people to communicate to us. And if the outcome is to understand what's going on for that person, does it matter how you find out? You know, if you're genuinely coming from a place of curiosity and love and wanting to understand and wanting to help, does it matter whether it's written or typed or, you know, so a cuddle, sometimes a physical communication can be enough for people? Yeah. And that was this, this is a really interesting point you touch on because I think through COVID, that was so hard mm. because, you know, uh, uh, the whole thing through COVID was so focused on physical health that nobody even thought about the mental health impact that this was having. And for a lot of people, you know, even like when my wife was in hospital during COVID, there was no visits. So I couldn't see my wife for as long as she was in hospital. And that meant only being able to communicate over the phone speaking. And that was really hard because sometimes for mental health, people just want to have a walk with someone. They want to hug, like you said. They want to hold your hand. Or sometimes it just might be eating a meal in silence. And there was no way for that to happen. And I think that was so hard. And I think that's what a lot of people have struggled with over the last couple of years. And we're starting to see more and more conversations now around mental health and wellness because of the multifaceted nature of it. Because it's not just through the words that we say, but it's through how we be and so much of how we interact as a society with other human beings. And Nursi, you've put all of this incredible knowledge because you have walked the mile, like what we've heard here today, there has been nothing easy about that journey. But the beautiful thing that I constantly hear in your voice is, you know, you're you're really content and happy and and doing the things that you want to do and showing up for yourself and showing up for others and being there with your partner like how loving we've heard you talk throughout this episode has been divine and this has all been put into a couple of books tell us about those yeah sure so there've been uh, two books already out one a uh, third one coming out this year the first book is called growing through how coming out transformed my life and the reason that was the first book is i couldn't 
be the wife I am, the partner I am, the person I am today if I hadn't gone through my own personal journey of transformation. The reason I work in personal development and transformation today, you know, we often joke about the people that lead others through transformation are the ones that need a transformation themselves the most. Mm. And for me to have gone through that journey and grown through that journey, that's what's in that book taking you right back to the start, what it was like. It's completely honest, raw, authentic, and really real. It's kind of like sitting down and having a conversation with me on what it was like growing up, how life changed, and then the entire journey of transformation and now what it is like to live life since I've come out. And the almost that bit about it being completely unrecognizable, the, the life I lead now that I'm completely authentic and honest and just congruent in the way that I show up. So that's book one. Book two then was written or co-authored with my wife, Charlie, and that book is called A Different Reality, which goes into our lived journey of growing through mental health. And it's a book that you don't only have to read if you're someone experiencing mental health or caring for someone in mental health. It is a book to read to understand what someone, your friend, your family might be experiencing if they're experiencing mental health, but it also gives us tools, techniques to actually have conversations around mental health, to understand how we can manage our own wellness and well-being, how we can look at acceptance. And uh, through that book, we actually provide a real kind of um, behind the scenes almost. We actually take you behind the scenes on what actually a good day looks like, what a bad day looks like, what a mm. really, really hard day looks like and you know the moments where you think how am I ever going to survive this like those moments are actually captured and the beauty of writing that book and it's funny because it actually came out for me being in a in a carer support group and someone actually we were talking about books that we could read and someone said you know there's no books out there that have been written by a person that is living with mental health the books that are often written are by their family or friends after the person's passed and I thought wow, like we've got to share this story. So then I came home and I was like, come on, child, we've got, we've got to do this. But she was like, mm, not really sure. So then book one came out. And then after she saw that journey, she was like, okay, I feel like we can do this. So that's when we decided to co-write book two. But she actually pulls out and shares from her point of view what it is like living with mental health. And that has been so helpful for people to read because often when their loved one is is struggling, they don't know what it's like. So getting that insight has been so helpful and then also understanding how we can show up as a carer, as somebody that is journeying through and supporting the person and we leave people with hope and possibility of what is possible and the thing around hope being hold on possibilities exist because there's always, always a way forward. So those are the two books that are out. Uh, you can get them on Amazon or any other uh, book site. And we'll pop them in the show notes. We'll pop a link in the show notes so that they can find you. Amazing. And uh, the third book that's coming out this year is actually called uh, Speak for Impact. So that is uh, the reason, again, I do that. That's a program that I run, which is called Speak for Impact, which helps people present with confidence, share their story and message, and really connect with their audience. And the reason that this is so important is because I really believe that we are at a point where people are wanting to hear real and authentic stories. And when we can share our stories, that is where we're able to connect with people. And Speak for Impact came about because I, for so many years, was terrified, terrified of speaking, terrified of sharing my story, terrified of public speaking. Like I would physically get ill if I was ever needed to do that. And to go from that place to now this actually being what I do every day, like having just done my first tour of the US as a speaker, like to me, that is the reason this program came about to show anybody that you know, they can speak and share a story. And when you have the tools and techniques that you need, then that is possible. And the whole purpose of Speak for Impact is to raise diverse voices, to share stories and to impact lives. So that book is coming out this year, which will give you all the hints and tips that you can need to share your story and message with the world. So stay tuned for that one. I just am blown away. There's three books. I'm like, where have you found the time? <laughs> seriously like that's blowing me away and we will absolutely put all of that in the show notes 
Narissa, what haven't I asked you? You know, like we've covered a lot of grounds and then I know there's a lot more to your story than even what we've touched on here today. And that's what, you know, I'm going to go away and get those books because I think that's going to give us a little bit more of a look through the window as to some of the experiences that you've had over the years and how you've kind of managed them, what your thoughts have been, what your lessons have been. But what haven't we spoken about that you'd like the audience to know? Probably the way that I can help you, like the way that I can help the audience or anyone listening in today. And there are a couple of ways that I can do that. So like I mentioned, I'm a, a speaker. So if you've got an organization that is looking for someone to come in and speak, I speak on topics of authenticity, personal development, leadership, mental health and well-being. And if that's something that you're looking at in taking your team through, your audience through, then do get in touch. I also run programs, whether that's down the speaking path of sharing your story and message, which is Speak for Impact or personal development programs as well. And if that's something you'd like to do or you'd like to run a session or get me to come in and facilitate on a topic for you as well, then please get in touch because I don't want this to be just a one-time conversation that we have. It's about how can we continue to have these conversations and continue to build spaces where people feel comfortable in being who they are, showing up how they are, and that we can enable more purpose and possibility in this world. And I love to finish the podcast with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh? (laughs) I would actually say my dog. So we've got a little cavoodle who's going to be five. And I was honestly not a dog person. I didn't even want one. But my wife is absolutely passionately fond of dogs. And so I just got a dog for her. And now I'm like the smitten one. I'm like totally, you know, smitten by this dog. But, yeah, she is absolutely crazy. Like there's moments of high stress in our lives and then we just turn and look at her and I just like I'm on the floor like giggling and laughing and just rolling around with her and she brings so much joy and happiness to my life. So, yeah, it would be my dog that makes me completely belly laugh. She's crazy. Thank you so much, so much for taking the time out. And I know you've just got back from traveling and like we tried to find a time so many times and I just, I really do appreciate you coming on and sharing everything that you've shared today. Thank you so much, Ali, for having me. Thank you for having this conversation and I hope it's helped those listening in. You know, if there's any further questions, feel free to reach out. It has been such a pleasure to have this conversation and I'm so happy we got to do it this year to close the year out. Nerissa has been through so much and it's quite incredible that she's been able to find a voice to share with the world in order to help others. I was only having this conversation this morning with a girlfriend about how difficult it can be to talk about your deepest, darkest moments or times in your life that are challenging. Sometimes we hear others speak so openly and fluently and it's easy to forget how much pain surrounded the difficult moments. Sometimes that pain is wrapped up with shame and fear and like I just want to acknowledge every single guest, including Narissa, for having the courage to come on and talk. And, you know, I say this a lot, but I really mean it, like, they're doing this to help others. It's such a selfless act to be able to come and talk about those moments that are so hard. So I really hope that you guys have gained something from this episode. Narissa really spoke beautifully about how to create space and encourage other people to be fully themselves for us to accept them unconditionally. I believe this is so important and it's one thing that I'm constantly trying to improve on personally. So if you're out there feeling like you don't know how to have the conversation around mental health, you are not alone. I highly recommend that you grab a copy of Narissa's book as she breaks down some really great strategies for this. Remember this week to notice the small things and enjoy the times where things are going well. This is the time to pump up your tires and fill that well-being bucket all the way to the brim. I will see you guys all next Monday. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. 